on the website for the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, you can read the original created version of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He actually made this by hand. You can see it there. You can page through it. You can read it. And as you do, if you do this, you'll find something rather fascinating. That this is a Bible that Thomas Jefferson edited. But he did not use a pen. He didn't add anything. There are no notes. Nothing added. He didn't edit it with a pen at all. He edited it with scissors. All he did was take some things out. And as you read through it, if you read through Thomas Jefferson's Bible, which he titles The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, and you set that alongside the Bible that hopefully you have, you'll notice that there's a certain kind of thing that's consistently taken out. Any reference to miracles is taken out. Anything supernatural is cut out. And sometimes it's just a matter of one verse. And you'll see verse 27, and verse 29, and no verse 28. Certainly, anything related to the power of the death of Jesus to save people from sin is taken out. It, it, it was interesting to me how they described the curation of this Bible and how when they went through and they were, they were sort of taking it apart in order to put it back together, and there were pages that were folded together, and sometimes inside those pages there would be little tiny remnants of historical things shards of glass or hairs, and the smallest thing they would find, they would put in a polyethylene bag to save it along with this, this, this archive they have. They didn't want to miss anything, which is a little bit ironic, that Thomas Jefferson missed everything uh, by cutting certain things out about Jesus. It has been the sinful human inclination from the very beginning to carve off pieces of God's gifts in order to keep them without actually getting God himself. To say, I want, <clears throat> I want what's yours, but I don't, want, I don't want you. That would take too much from me. That's an attitude that's very similar to the prodigal son, who basically said to his father, I want what's yours, I don't want you. It's also very similar to the older brother, who essentially, in a different way, said the same thing. I don't want your love, I want your stuff. That's what I want, and I'm okay to get it without having you. So in, in this morning's passage, John is going to set before us the danger of trying to cut off pieces of God's gifts in order to receive them without receiving the troublesome reality of God's love. The danger of loving the world and missing the love of the Father. And then he's going to describe the particular danger of trying to cut up pieces of Jesus in order to make him something that's a little more comfortable for us. And how in the process of doing that, people had cut themselves off from true believers. And then he's going to bring the people who are remaining in Jesus to the promise that when you receive Jesus, the real Jesus, the whole Jesus, as an expression of the love of the Father, then you have everything that the Father offers you. 
You don't need to follow those who are saying, uh, we've, we've found a better way. We've found a safer way. John says, stay where you are. You're on the right track. You're in the right place. Remain in him as he is. So this morning, uh, once again, as we, as we follow John through a letter that is integrated from beginning to end, knowing where to start and stop is, is a challenge, but we'll do our best. This morning we're looking at uh, John 2, verses 15 through 28. It's a, a little passage. We're going to try to slow down and go through somewhat shorter passages after this morning, but I hope the Lord will help us to get our bearings. This morning I'll, I'll just encourage you to stay seated as I read because it's a little bit longer. Uh, hopefully that will give you the opportunity to look closely at this passage as we read it. John 2.15 begins, if you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, begins on page 1021. John 15, John 2 rather, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 28. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. <clears throat> They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Who, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything. And is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you. Abide in him. And now little children abide in him. So that when he appears we may have confidence. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is, for us, the word of the Lord. John starts speaking generally by, by telling people, don't try to carve off the gifts that God gives from God himself, from the love of the Father. He talks about that generally in verses 15 through 17 when he says, do not love the world. And then he becomes more specific about that and warns 
his readers not to follow those who are trying to carve up Jesus and take out the parts that feel uncomfortable to them and leave the parts that feel convenient. And he'll do that in verses 18 through 28. The first, John gives them what he set them up for, and that is the first command in the letter. First command is in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And we've seen already that John is really good at getting us to ask questions about and leave the parts that... And here, he gets us to ask the question right out of the gate, what do you mean by in the world? What do you mean by the world? What do you mean by the things in the world? Because in one sense, the world is full of good things that the Father has made and he loves to give to his children. It's not the things that are the problem. It's a particular attitude toward them. I think we'll see that as he describes the things that are in the world. John says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this is an attitude toward the things that are in the world that tries to cut them off from the love of the Father. He gets more specific in verse 16 about what the things in the world are that he's actually describing. And he describes them in terms of attitude. They are the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. The world, as John describes it, is a system, a way of going about life, going about getting life, that he's going to tell us a little bit later in the letter, this, the world, this system, this arrangement, he says, lies in the power of the evil one. And so this world is an arrangement in which God's creatures say, we have what you made, so we don't need you. And as long as we can just keep getting more of what you made, then we can keep not needing you. And the evil one loves to keep the whole world in his power by promoting that idea. It's not a hard idea to promote because it connects with natural, sinful, human desire. Specifically, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. That sort of threefold description, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in possession, sounds a lot like two other threefold things, threefold temptations that we see described in the Bible. You may know where I'm going here. One of them ended badly when, as we read earlier, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Genesis 3.6. Russell Moore comments on this temptation in his really, really good book, Tempted and Tried. When He says that in this temptation, Eve started to see God not as father, but as rival. 
And that's when she struck out to grab what he was holding back from her. Her appetites, Satan said, were a more reliable guide to what she needed than the word of her God. And so the power of the evil one was established. She said, I'm I'm going to go with what I can see and with what I feel like I want. And her husband joined her in it, and they were sent from the garden into the wilderness, away from fellowship with the Father. And it's in the wilderness that we see the other similar temptations show up. We see this described in Matthew 4. The tempter offered to Jesus essentially the same things. The things that appeal to the lust of the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And it ended very differently. It ended this time not with saying, maybe you're right. It ended in Matthew 4.10 with, be gone, Satan. And Jesus, in his victory over temptation, started to open up a way back from the wilderness into the garden by saying, I'm going to stay in the place of sonship. I'm going to stay in this place where I'm going to insist on God being my father, living under his fatherhood, living in the love of the father. By saying that, he defeated Satan in that temptation, began to open up the way back from the wilderness into the garden for us. Let's think for a minute about what these desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions actually actually are. Again, with regard to the desires of the flesh, God has made good things and he's designed the human body to want them. So, writing about food in particular to Timothy, uh, Paul reminds Timothy that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There are, of course, some ways of gratifying the body's desires that, that say, by their very nature, I, I don't need the love of the Father. I need this. That, that really are done only to consume. That by their very nature, say of other people, to the extent that you matter, you only matter to satisfy me. There are some behaviors that really can't say more than that. Uh, that can't receive and enjoy and express the love of the Father. And so God is gracious to take those kinds of behaviors and clarify them for us with rules. Do not commit adultery. There's no way to do that and to experience in it or to extend through it the love of the Father. So God's gracious to clarify some of those things for us by rules. And at the same time, when John talks about the desires of the flesh, his focus is not on rules. Those rules are given to us graciously, but John's point and the point of those rules is relationship. Because John says, 
that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the desires of the flesh refuse to say, the Father has given me life through these good things. These good things are an expression of the love of the Father. Instead, the desires of the flesh say either, this is what I live for, or this is all that I live by. And that's the temptation that Satan faced Jesus with in the wilderness. What was the first temptation? It was, if you are the Son of God, if God's really your Father, if you're really the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus refuses to step out of the role of Son. He refuses to step out underneath the fatherhood of God and force provision for himself. He says, no, what gives me life is my Father. I don't live by bread alone. I live by what my Father has told me. I live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He insisted on living with God as his Father. So when we think about the desires of the flesh, these desires that say, I want your things, but I don't want you. Sometimes it's helpful to think about what, what marks the difference between the desires of the flesh that are not from the Father and enjoying and receiving good created things from the Father. There are a few things that, that mark the difference. One is simply asking have you asked the Father for this thing? You probably will never ask the Father to provide for you an open door to an adulterous relationship. You just won't do that. And the fact that you wouldn't uh, helps to see that this is not something that has any room for the love of the Father in it. But what about other good things? When, when you see good things in the world and you think, that would be nice, or that would be useful, or that would be pleasant, to start with, Father, I, I see this, this thing that I would like that would be pleasant for me, that would make life nicer for me. You know that when it comes down to it, I want this. And so if it would be good for me, if it would be useful for me, if it would be a way for me to experience your wise love for me, then would you provide it, that vehicle, that home, that job, whatever it might be, to come to the Father and ask. And in asking, you're set up to receive those kinds of things in a way that, that is not what John describes as the desires of the flesh. It's an experience of the love of the Father. As you ask, you set yourself up, if he provides it, to receive it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an experience of the love of the Father. In some ways, it's a fulfillment of having received the Father's love. And if, if you don't receive it, then there is a willingness to not receive it, to thank Him for not giving us the things that we wanted. The difference between the desires of the flesh and receiving good things from the Father is really, when it comes down to it, trusting the love of the Father. Trusting His love is 
at work when it comes to the desires of the eyes as well. This is, this is more than liking to look at things and sort of drinking things in through our eyes. Now that, that, can, that can be at work as well, but I think there's something deeper when it comes to the desires of the eyes. It comes down to what your eyes actually tell you. Eve in the garden, what did she do? She, she looked and she saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Imagine her looking at that and thinking, I can tell just by looking at this that this is good for me. God has told me that in the day that I eat of it, I'll die, but I can tell that this thing is delightful. I can see just by looking at it. And in the wilderness, the temptation of the enemy, the second temptation, was essentially to Jesus to say, God has talked big about caring about you. He said, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's talked big about caring for you. Make him show you. Jump down. Make him deliver on his promise now. Make him prove it to you. Prove it to your eyes. You say that you live by the word of God, but make God prove his word to you. That sense that I can figure out what's true simply by what I can see, I think is at work in this, this issue of the desires of the eyes. And it's something for us to be, watch, to be watching for in this world today. To remember that there is something that we struggle to see with our eyes that, that is actually what gives us life. And so often we try to find life through our eyes instead. Sometimes we do that in very, very simple, kind of superficial ways, especially in our world. We have a world in which our eyes are offered a constant flow of, of things that are interesting, things that are fascinating, uh, things that seem like they are important, things that make life feel like uh, real life. Sometimes it's, it's just a flow of entertainment. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with entertainment, but entertainment can send, us, can send a message to us through our eyes that all the important stuff is right here. You can feel like you're living right here just by using your eyes. You don't really need the love of the Father because you've got enough to keep you occupied here. And once this 60-second video is over, then there's another one right behind it. You've got plenty right here. Sometimes it happens through entertainment. We want to watch our hearts for that. Sometimes it happens more through expertise. We want to be people who don't have our heads buried in the sand about what's going on in the world. And so we want to try to keep ourselves informed. And we want to know what's happening. And we want to know, as a result, what's going to happen and as a result, it's possible for us to have our heads buried in the sand of being informed about what's happening this minute and what it means and to miss out on what God has actually told us. To miss out on who we are today. Being informed by the world isn't going to tell us that. It's not going to tell us that you're informed by your relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. That you are safe in his love no matter what's blowing up, maybe literally, in this world right now.
And it tells us how our story ends. It, it can help us to see beyond the immediate things that are happening right now, and there are so many of them, to the place where our story actually takes us. It helps us to have a longer-term perspective. <clears throat> our eyes cannot tell us everything. We long for them to, but they can't. They can only tell us temporary things. We have the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, all these things that we want to get apart from the Father. And we have what John describes as pride in possessions. John does not only mean here being proud of all the stuff that I have. Uh, that's actually kind of going out of style now anyway. Younger people are, are much more prone to focus on acquiring experiences rather than acquiring possessions. And so to some degree, whether it's stuff or experiences, that's just a matter of style. That's just a matter of generations. One way of translating this is, is describing it as the pride of life. Not real life. Just life as I've arranged it for myself today. It's about pride in the way that I have managed to arrange my life. This is one dangerous step past, I'll get it for myself. Pride, the pride in possessions, as John describes it, really is, I got this for myself. I've done it right. I've done it well. This is about finding your confidence and your stability and your identity and your safety and your joy in hearing other people say, you've done well for yourself. You're good enough. On your own. And so in the garden, Eve could see that the fruit was to be desired to make one wise. I can, I can get what I need for myself. I can do well enough for myself if I just know enough. If I know the secret knowledge that this fruit is going to give me, I'll be like God. And so Satan's temptation to Jesus in the wilderness is do well for yourself. He says, I'll help you. The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you'll fall down and worship me, then I will give you glory. I, I will put you in a place where you have done well for yourself. And Jesus says what Eve didn't, what Adam should have said for her, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. This temptation to do well for yourself and to, to show that you have done well for yourself, to get it for yourself, is something that's really, really sneaky. And this is not just a matter of piling up enough money so that you can have a better scorecard than somebody else has. That's one of many, many ways of doing it. That's probably not the, the thing that we're mainly faced with as believers. To some degree it is. There are really sneaky ways of proving that we've done well for ourselves and using it to feed things like the desires of the flesh. It, it can even come in the form of good Christian performance or what looks like good Christian performance. We have seen 
good Christian performance that in the end feeds the desires of the flesh, we've seen that blow up lives and ministries and families. We've been sort of following secondhand a story of somebody right now who, uh, who is the kind of person who is impressive and attractive within Christian circles and who's done really well even in full-time ministry. And, and as a result of using that, in the end, to feed the desires of the flesh, has completely blown up his life, blown up his family, uh, facing horrible situations. And, and you can imagine the draw. Imagine the temptation for somebody who's really capable and really attractive and, and really able to kind of draw people around you, and then you realize, wait a minute, I have more ability to get things for myself than I'm allowed to use. What more is in it for me? I'm capable of getting more than I'm allowed to have. And what good does it do me to be so capable and so impressive and so attractive if I can't use it to get anything more for myself. I feel like I'm just, I feel like I'm not really alive. And I need more to feel alive. I need more, in the end, than the love of the Father. And that idea destroys lives. Those pleasures, the pleasures that we try to carve off for ourselves, they keep providing temporary satisfaction. And so they come with the promise of permanent satisfaction. But John is very clear that it never shows up. Verse 17, and the world, this system of saying, we want your things without you. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, uh, in the Screwtape Letters, uh, writes for Wormwood, this older demon who's writing to a fictitious younger demon, describes the whole thing this way. We want cattle who can finally become food. He, that is God, wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. God intends to give his love to his children. Sometimes that, that comes to us in a way that where we feel like that, that requires too much of me. The Father's love is something that I can't just pick and choose from. It's something that defines my whole life. And yet it is an overflow of his goodness. John is writing to those who are in Christ. He, he's writing to those who have been brought back from the wilderness by the one who faced these same temptations and faced them successfully. And now he's bringing be people back to the love of the Father. And John wants his readers, in the very best way, to remember their place, to remember where they really belong. The, the most fundamental command in 
1 John, the most fundamental command that keeps us connected to the love of the Father is to believe in His Son. You want to know where the love of the Father has been expressed to us, how we know what the love of the Father is actually like, we see it in the gift of His Son. In the gift of His Son as He actually is. And so John moves on and says, don't take that gift and carve it up. The situation that John's readers actually find themselves in is a situation in which that exact thing is happening. People are taking Jesus and trying to get the parts of him that they want and leave the parts that they find inconvenient. And John says, as a result, people have, people have carved themselves off from you. And I want to encourage you to not follow them. Don't go with them. You have what you need where you are. So we see that in verses 18 through 28. And it's, it's here that John gives us the most specifics about the situation that he's actually writing about. He's going to describe that situation in verses 18 through 21. He, he's going to get very specific about the, the lie that was behind that situation in verses 22 and 23. And then once again, he's just going to reiterate this call to these people that he loves to say, Stay where you are. Remain where you are. Do not follow these people who are trying to make up a different Jesus. Remain with the message that you've heard from the beginning. He describes a situation in verses 18 through 21. And he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. It is the last hour. It's that time, very generally speaking, that time in human history between Jesus' resurrection and his return. And the thing that's happening during that time is that humanity is being divided along the lines of one question. That one question is, who is Jesus? It's an urgent question. It's the last hour. John's readers are, are in that hour, and they may find themselves asking the question, what, what's going on? Here we are in this situation. We, we, we were in this group together, worshiping Jesus together, and now some people have disagreed and some people have left. Maybe some of them were even friends. This has been a really painful thing, and we're really struggling to know what to make of it. Who's, who's right here, and, and what should we actually believe about Jesus. And so John wants to make very clear to them why this has happened. He tells them in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. True faith in the real Jesus perseveres. And so these, these people, by going out from us, showed that they never actually believed in the real Jesus in the first place. Now just to be clear, this, this is not just anybody who leaves a church. This is not about going from one church to another church. This is not about a secondary disagreement either. This is not about somebody who disagrees with you about when exactly the rapture is going to happen compared to other end times events. There's a right biblical answer, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about someone who replaces the real Jesus with an edited Jesus and who somebody and somebody who has proved that they don't believe in the real Jesus by leaving 
the people who believe in the real one because they have redefined him. That's what it means to be an antichrist. Recognizing recognizing that definition of the antichrist is, is actually far more important than being able to guess in any given generation who the antichrist might actually be. The real important issue is what somebody says about Jesus. John wants his his readers, his people, his friends to know that they have stayed in the right place. So he's emphasized to them, guys, this what what you're believing now is not something new. It's the same thing that we told you from the beginning. And he tells them, do you remember what you received at the beginning that helped you to know that this was real? This wasn't just a message that was, re- that was given by us. God himself personally showed up and endorsed this message. Caused you to say, it is Jesus. It, Jesus Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus who became man, Jesus who died for our sins, the world doesn't make any sense without that being true. John says, God made that clear to you when we brought our message to you in the first place. And here's how. Jesus promised that he would. This is John 16, 12 through 15. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will come, and he will bear witness to me. And John says, you have an anointing, from the Holy One in verse, in verse 20. And you have all knowledge. In, in, in very basic terms, the Spirit of God is the one who has helped you to see that Jesus is real. That Jesus is the Savior of mankind. You received that endorsement from the very beginning. And so you don't need anybody to come and bring you new information. You have all the knowledge you need to go on believing in the same Jesus that we brought to you in the first place. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. So what was the lie? Very specifically, John John says, here's the lie that's being promoted. Who is the liar? Verse 22, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There are many different ways of doing this. There's kind of a buffet of options. You could deny that Jesus is the Christ by by saying Jesus was not actually a real human being. There are people who have said that. By saying Jesus wasn't actually God. By saying that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. Taking something that's true about Jesus, that he had to be in order to be the Christ and saying that wasn't actually true. More importantly than asking the question, what are some of the ways of denying that Jesus is the Christ? We might ask, why would somebody do that in the first place? Persevering in the confession that Jesus is the Christ 
can kind of sound like just a, a technicality. Like, yes, Jesus is the Christ. It's, it's easy to say. Uh, it's not that hard for any of us to even go out of here and say, yes, Jesus is the Christ. But when we stop and think about what that actually means, what that actually means for the world, what it actually means for us, we realize this is something that can feel threatening to people. God breaking into the world to rescue helpless, rebellious sinners in the person of his son is more than the world is asking for. We'll take an example of love. We'll take a good, wise teacher. But Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And the world is not willing to give that much trust. So this, John says, is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. People don't only miss out on the Father because they deny the Son. They deny the Son because they don't want the Father. They want to carve off pieces of His gifts. They don't want their lives to be consumed by His love. They want to love themselves well enough, do well for themselves. And Jesus showing up as the Christ says, you can't do that. You can't do that. I must do it for you. John says he has, you know that, so remain in him. And that's his call. He repeats it in verses 24 through 28. In many ways, it's a mirror image of what he said in the first part of the section. What you heard from the beginning, let it remain in you. Don't be drawn away by those who are trying to deceive you. Abide, verse 27, abide in him. Abide doesn't only mean live, it, it means stay. It means persevere. John says if you go on trusting in Jesus as he is, you'll show that you belong to him and you will receive what he promised. And what he promised to us is in verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. It's urgent. It's not only urgent today, it's urgent tomorrow and the next day. It's urgent that we believe in Jesus today, and it's urgent that we persevere in acknowledging who Jesus actually is. This is, after all, the last hour. Right now, we believe and we hold on to our confession without seeing. We haven't seen Jesus, this person that we're banking all of our hope on, we haven't seen him, but it won't always be that way. John promises that in verse 28. The time will come when he appears, and he will appear in such obvious, undeniable power and glory that, that any mere human will Verse 28, again, shrink from him in shame at his coming. But John says that doesn't have to happen. Abide in him. Remain in him. Continue to confess who Jesus actually is. And you will not, when he appears, 
shrink from him in shame at his coming. You'll be received by him in glory. That's next week. We look at the hope that we have as those who abide in Jesus when he returns and we see him as he is. We're not faced often with the direct temptation to deny that Jesus is the Christ today. You might have somebody show up on your doorstep and bring a different Jesus, and that's kind of an uncomfortable situation. Sometimes we don't know what to do with that. But probably you're not tempted to say, you know what, I, I'm really convinced by this person that Jesus isn't actually God. That's probably not the case. So what's the tug to not remain as we face it today, as we face it here today? The, the question of who Jesus is forms the most basic dividing line in human history. And, and this is where it's relevant for us, I think, today, a, a shared confession that Jesus is the Christ is what binds us together today, even in the face of so many secondary things to disagree about. 2020 has been the year of disagreements, hasn't it? And so we the, the place where the temptation to set Jesus aside, the place where that shows up for us today is, is in the place of, without even realizing it, functionally denying what Jesus has done. Functionally denying that Jesus is actually good enough, maybe without ever actually saying it. But here's the big question for us who believe together in Jesus and who have had some of our some of our similarities with one another stripped away by this year and its events. We're left with things a little bit raw. So here's the question for us when we say we still believe together that Jesus is the Christ. Is Jesus really able to save someone whose leanings in one way or another are threatening life as I know it? Is Jesus really the propitiation for that person's sins? Is Jesus really able to advocate before the Father for that person? And is he really able to advocate for the, before the Father for me? And, and if I stand together with this person with whom I disagree about things that feel really important today. And I say, no, you know what? Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is the Christ, and he's the Christ for you, and he's the Christ for me. Then that means that we are going to receive one another as accepted. We're going to accept one another. We're not necessarily going to agree one, with one another but by persevering with each other, we're going to confess together to one another and to the world that Jesus is the Christ. And as the Christ, he's enough to see us through, to help us to persevere both in confessing him with words and confessing him by loving and receiving one another. Father, you know our temptation to Try to pick and choose, and as a result, to want 
your things and to not want your love, but your love is immeasurably good. You've shown it to us in Christ. You've shown it to us in the real Christ. So we ask once again for your grace to persevere in confessing him, in not trying to make up a different version of him, and in confessing him to one another and with one another, remaining together because what unites us in Christ is stronger than anything that can tear us apart. We pray for your spirit's power for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris, how are we doing outside? Okay? The rain has sufficiently... this
Now 